with again happy Father's Day. <laughs> There's always that awkward moment of, uh, do we say anything? What do we do? I don't know. This is, all right, let's see if I can get this to stay where it needs to stay. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know you as Father. We thank you that through the, the work of your Holy Spirit, through the finished work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can, by grace through faith, receive your Holy Spirit as the Spirit of adoption, that we can be called your children, your sons and your daughters, that it is through the work of Christ and the assistance of your Holy Spirit that we can cry to you, Abba, Father, and know that we are loved, know that we are forgiven, know that we have been filled with grace, and know that wherever we go, wherever we are, wherever you may lead us and wherever we may stray from your path, we are always in your presence. That you who have set your seal upon us, who have marked us with your Holy Spirit, will neither abandon nor forsake us. We thank you, Lord God, that those times when we turn our back on you for whatever reason, you continually reach toward us, continually seek us out, continually desire to remind us always of your love, your grace, and your mercy. Even, Father, when we feel the stern rod of your correction, we know that it is a rod of love in grace and mercy, to keep us from falling into further danger. You rest us, O Lord God, from those places, and you set our feet, as the poet has said, on high places, firm, level ground in which we can walk and live and have our being, trusting always in you. We thank you, Father, with David, that you are our light, you are our salvation, you are the stronghold of our life. And knowing these things... We have no cause, no reason to fear or ever to be afraid. For the one of whom we should be afraid, the one who is three times holy, who is just, has called us his child. Therefore, whom shall we fear? Be gracious to us now, Lord God, in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're continuing in our, our series on worship and how that is incorporated into our gathering every Sunday for worship. And of course, uh, it, it should go without saying, but by way of reminder, our corporate worship, our gathered worship, really uh, will be enriched and enlivened through our individual worship so that as we are worshiping God on our own, in our families throughout the week, that then informs our gathered worship and it inspires us to sing as you have uh, with really robust voices and a true and genuine joy. The Psalms are designed to help us understand ways in which we can worship God, the benefit and the blessing of worshiping God in every and any circumstance, both in joyous times and in times of hard seasons and of sorrow. 
One of the most enjoyable books I've read about the Psalms, including the Psalms themselves, is a book by C.S. Lewis called Reflections on the Psalms. And in that book, Lewis writes that the most valuable thing in the Psalms uh, to me is that they express the same delight in God which made David dance. I'm not saying that this is so pure or so profound a thing as the love of God reached by the greatest Christian saints and mystics. I am not comparing it with that. I am comparing it with the merely dutiful church-going and laborious saying our prayers to which most of us are, thank God, not always, but often reduced. Against that, it stands out as something astonishingly robust, virile, and spontaneous. Something we may regard with an innocent envy and may hope to be infected by as we read. So the delight about which Lewis speaks and the hopes uh, that he has which will infect our worship comes through seeking a deeper intimacy with God. An intimacy with God may not be the first thought that comes to mind when we think about worshiping God, but it was at the top of David's mind when he entered God's presence to worship him. All of David's psalms resound with a robust, a virile, or a bold and spontaneous joy, a delight that should be infectious as we read it. The vast experience and the wide-ranging experiences that David had are just expressed in these psalms. There's nothing artificial or made up in David's psalms and the language that he uses. His psalms and the psalms themselves, but David's psalms in particular, they are earthy and they are expressive, they are honest, and they are human. And they reveal the heart of a man whom God himself described as a man after his own heart. David is a man familiar with what it meant not only to be intimate with God, but to continue to seek intimacy with God. And that's a word that we don't often associate with worship, especially from a male perspective. We, we hesitate or maybe are a bit uncomfortable with the word intimacy, but David wasn't, and neither is the Scripture. There is this sense of a closeness that comes about when we draw near and come into the presence of God to worship Him. And intimacy with God is simply the, the fruit of a robust, bold, and spontaneous joy in our worship of Him. And so there are a couple of things, several things, that intimacy with God does. As we're going to look at uh, Psalm 27, we're going to look at intimacy in terms of how it begins, what it creates, what it generates, and what it inspires. So when we think about intimacy with God, we're going to think about how it begins, what it creates, what it generates, and what it inspires. So the first thing is, what is, how does it begin? Well, intimacy with God begins, as David does here, it begins by talking to yourself about God. That's what David does when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's bringing to mind the very aspect of God's character of which he is the most familiar and most intimate. David is remembering 
looking back over the, the landscape of his life, the geography of his history, and he sees moments and he remembers moments when God indeed was his light and salvation and stronghold. Most scholars believe that David wrote this psalm as an older man, perhaps as a man near the end of his life. And so as he's looking back, he's remembering those moments, those times when God indeed proved to be the very things David says he is, light, salvation, and refuge. If you remember in 1 Samuel 17, David says to Saul and to those in his company that he killed lions and bears with God's help, that it was in 1 Samuel 17 that David stands boldly to challenge and ultimately kill Goliath. And then in 1 Samuel 19, we read about how many times God protected David from Saul's murderous attempts. Then in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21, we read about God saving and rescuing David from the clutches of the Philistine king Abimelech. You can read about that in Psalm 34. In 2 Samuel 12, not only did God save, Daniel, uh, save David from physical harm and danger, but God also spared David from spiritual death because in 2 Samuel 12, we read where God forgives David and spares his life when he, in fact, deserved to die for abusing his authority as king and committing adultery with Bathsheba and then plotting to kill her husband. And then lastly, perhaps even in 2 Samuel 15, God comes to David's rescue and protects him when he has to flee Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has led an insurrection against him. And so David, as he's remembering these things and, and perhaps quiet in solitude, or even in distress, as we'll later see, the first thing he tells himself is, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? The answer is, no one. The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? Again, the answer is no one. Because when you learn to fear God more than your circumstances, when you learn to fear God more than men or women or any living creature, be it a lion, a bear, or anything, or any illness, or any other kind of circumstance, when you learn that your greatest fear, your greatest reverence is due only to the God who created you, there is nothing and no one worthy of that kind of fear except God alone. And he has put aside that fear by his grace and mercy. And so by remembering how God rescued him from all these dangers, David gained the necessary clarity of heart and mind, not only to worship God, but to trust him. He talked to himself. What, what do you talk to yourself about during the week? I like the way Paul Tripp says it. No one spends more time with you than you. No one talks to, your, talks to themselves more than you. So what are you talking to yourself about? If you talk to my wife, you'll learn I talk to myself a lot. And it's sometimes rather annoying because she doesn't know to whom I'm speaking, whether I'm speaking to her or the television or just out loud, just musing, whether it's pleasant or frustration. But what are you talking to yourself about? What are you telling your soul about your relationship with God? 
Because intimacy with God begins with that kind of self-talk. By reminding ourselves. You know, many of you know, and I'll be giving an update uh, at the members meeting, that I'm involved in a, a clinical pastoral education. And I go to Morristown Hospital and I do clinical rounds. I visit patients on the cardiac floor and on the, the post-op floor. And when I... As I'm driving and as I'm walking into the hospital, the words from 10,000 Reasons, that song, is playing in my head. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. And whatever lies before me, whatever may come, may I be singing when this evening comes, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And when I knock on a patient's door who has never seen me before, I have a little badge, has my picture on it with a little sign, it says chaplain, and I'm going to be cheerful, and I don't know how they're going to respond, and I'm afraid of their response. I remind myself, I've been saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, of whom shall I be afraid? I'm there to offer spiritual care. I'm there to offer spiritual comfort. What do you tell yourself when you find yourself in situations that you're afraid, that you're fearful, that you're anxious, or even when you are angry? What calms you? How do you, how do you speak to yourself? Do you bring down curses upon yourself when you find yourself stressed and frustrated? Or do you take that moment to sort of breathe in the peace of God and remember, He is my light, He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. Intimacy with God begins with talking to yourself about the character of God, starting by reminding yourself of his power and his protection. That's why David says, the Lord is my light. In his commentary on this psalm, Derek Kidner says that light is a natural figure of almost everything that is positive. From truth and goodness to joy and vitality, light brings clarity to any situation. It's why as a kid I always liked to have a flashlight with me when I went to bed. Because when I was afraid of the dark, I'd pop on that flashlight. Because the thing I feared was somewhere way up in the corner of my room, there was a spider. And I didn't worry about monsters in the closet or monsters under my bed. I worried about spiders jumping from the wall and landing on me. And I would flash. Okay, no spiders. You're afraid of the conversation at work. You're afraid of that confrontation that you have to have with a, a coworker about something that needs to be done or something that was said. You're afraid of that counseling situation or that review that's coming up. The Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Light brings clarity. And with clarity comes confidence. And with confidence comes hope. And with hope comes the assurance of God's power and God's protection. We look ahead into the New Testament and we know that the Apostle John, when he is writing about God in his first letter, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. So the, the thing that you're concerned about, the thing that makes you afraid, which may make you withdraw from God because somewhere in the back of your mind, the enemy is telling me, well, if you really did love God, if you really did trust God, you wouldn't be afraid. You'd be as bold as a lion. And you begin to think, oh, I'm not like that. And so I must be a terrible person. I must be a terrible Christian. And John says, stop. And David says, stop. Talk to yourself. There's clarity and light. You have fellowship with God. God, and the blood of his son has cleansed you and cleanses you from all sin. Your fear will not break your union with God, but it can break your communion with God. And so John and David would agree in saying, remember that he is light, that he will give you clarity. And it is because the Lord is his light that David could boldly say in Psalm 23, When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He can look at God preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. Who does that? It's like there they are, the troops are aligned, the, the men with spears and swords and shields, brandishing all sorts of weaponry. And David says, time out, got to eat. God's prepared a table in the presence of my enemies because the Lord is his light. With clarity comes confidence. With confidence comes hope. And with hope comes the ability to think clearly and to act decisively. When all around is darkness, says David, the Lord is our light when all other lights fail. All other helps have been exhausted. The Lord still shines. John said that in his gospel about Jesus, the light shining in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, will never overcome it. So the Lord is my light. And then David goes on by saying, the Lord is my salvation. When the New Testament talks about salvation, it uses salvation in respect to saving us from a spiritual reality saving us from our sins, saving us from the wrath of God against us for our sins. It's always related and connected to a spiritual thing. In the Old Testament, it doesn't necessarily have that meaning all the time. Most of the time, when the Old Testament uses the word salvation, it refers to God saving or rescuing his people from physical harm and danger. You think of the Exodus. God saving Israel, how? By leading them through the Red Sea, delivering David from lions and bears and Goliath, those kinds of things. Interestingly enough, David combines both in this one psalm. He remembers that God did indeed save him from physical harm when he killed lions and bears and he challenged and killed Goliath. He also remembered when God forgave him, sparing his life when he deserved to die for his adultery with Bathsheba and plotting to kill her husband. When you pursue intimacy with God, you plunge deeper into the ocean of his grace, mercy, and loving kindness. And believe me, no one drowns in that ocean. That's a life-giving ocean. That is a soul-inspiring, hope-igniting ocean. The only thing that drowns in the ocean of God's grace is the fear that kept us from diving in in the first place. 
The only thing that drowns in that ocean are the dark things that would keep us from plunging beneath the water of his love, his grace, and his mercy. When we pursue intimacy with God, we experience a freedom, a joy that is unknown to any except those who have truly trusted and plunged further in and gone further up in his love. And then David continues, as if that's not enough, he says, the Lord is a stronghold of my life. A stronghold is, it's a refuge. It's a place of safety. So here we are, we're out in the world throughout the week. And we feel weak, we feel vulnerable. We've lost our temper with the kids. We've lost our temper with our husband or our wife. We've, we've allowed ourselves to be infected with the cares of this world. We see the news or we go on <laughs> social media and we compare ourselves with others, and we're just downtrodden. And we forget that the Lord is our stronghold. And then we gather with other believers, and we hear them worshiping. We hear the word read to us. We read the word with others, and we are reminded. We breathe in grace. We breathe in hope. We breathe in strength. We breathe in the things that God would inspire his people to trust in him, to hold firmly to him. And you remember... When I am weak, then I am strong. And you remember that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Nothing and no one. Because as long as God is caring for me, as long as God is looking out for me, I am safe. I am held. And he will not let go. David trusted in the presence of the Lord to be his refuge Remember, this is the same man who writes Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the depth of the ocean, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, you're there. If I hide in the darkness, even the darkness is light for you. That's a good thing. When you try to hide from God, guess what? He's there. There's no hide and seek with him. There's nowhere we could go, and that's a good thing that we cannot hide from his presence. Because in that moment when we were fearful and dreading him, he's like, he, it's like when he talks to Elijah, after Elijah has a victory with the prophets of Baal. So what are you doing here? I'm afraid. Of what? And then you tell him. And he says, child, haven't I told you? Don't you know? Have you not yet realized? Rest here a while. Rest in my love, rest in my strength, rest in my grace. Breathe in that peace. And then together we'll go out to where you must be, out to where you must confront the things of which you're afraid. And you will find that when you confront them, as frightening as they may be, they are nothing but shadow. They are the shadow of the truck that passes by you when you're driving in the car, not the truck itself. David drew comfort, peace, and courage from knowing the full-time, never-ending protection of God. That wherever we go, wherever we go, the Lord is our shepherd. That wherever we go, he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That he is always and already in the place where we are going. 
It's interesting that David says it that way with regard to the Lord being the stronghold and that which gives him hope and trust. Because when he talks later on about going to the temple, we'll, we'll see how that is, is inspiring to him. But the thing about the God of Israel, the thing about the God of the Bible, but, but particularly in, in the Old Testament, is that wherever God's people went, he was there. If you read the prophets, particularly Isaiah, they mock the gods of the pagan nations because in order for those pagan believers to believe that God was with them, they had to physically take the idol and carry it around with them. Right? And God forbid you leave the idol in his temple. You were naked. You were exposed. But David says... Doesn't matter where you are, God is there. Right? Nowadays, we have our little. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is it consumes our time. The good thing is there are apps that have the Word of God in it, that have teachings in it, and things like that. But even if that was taken away from you, we know by faith he resides within us. We know by faith that wherever we go, he's there. He will never leave us, never forsake us. Are you aware of God's presence like that? It's easy to become functional atheists when we leave this place and go to work. When we're consumed by time management and projects that need to be done and deadlines that need to be met and doctor visits that need to be made, and all manner of business when there are children to be fed and bathed and diapered, and the groceries need to be done, and the laundry, need, and the list goes on and on and on. And then the car breaks down, and then the bills come due, and it's just sort of piling up. And all you can see is just this mountain of obstacle of circumstance. Whom shall I be afraid? The still small voice whispers. If we hear it, if we heed it, as with Elijah, as with David, it becomes louder. Doesn't change the circumstances around us, but it changes our attitude and approach toward them. That is the thing. To be able to face them with a renewed hope, a renewed vigor, a renewed vitality. As frightening as David says there in, uh, uh, in verses 2 and following, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against us. This is hyperbole. Right? There may not necessarily be a physical army gathering around David, although he did experience that. He's just simply saying, no matter what comes my way, I will not be afraid. But even if they do, even if you could see your enemies, at least you can see them. What I've found, <laughs> in my experience, it's the enemies that you can't see that frighten me the most. The ones that lurk in the darkness and recesses of my heart. The things that go bump in the night that make me afraid. It's all of the what-if questions. I don't know if you'd play that game. What if? <laughs> what if? What if? What if? 
and God reminds me, what is? What is? What is true? What is lovely? What is admirable? What is excellent? What is praiseworthy? What is worthy of your attention that will help you navigate through these circumstances? Worry less, if not at all, about the what if, but focus on who is with you in the midst of all of that. God is our light and our salvation, so we need not be afraid. Notice that David has things of which he can be afraid. So it's not as if we're playing a denial game here, as if we're somehow you know, merrily blinding ourselves to the reality and dangers of whatever situations may confront us. He's simply saying, when those things happen and you find your stomach churning and your knees turning to water and your eyes becoming cloudy and you're, you just, you're going deaf because all you can think about is what's in front of you, David says, at that moment... Take that fear and bring it into the presence of God because you're in his presence. And remind yourself, he's your life, he's your salvation, he is the stronghold of your life. Remind yourself of what Paul says in Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, to name a few? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, says Paul, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, not I guess, not could be, I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is written by a man who was shipwrecked, who was beaten, who was stoned to death, who spent nights in cold and hunger. None of all of that, he says, that I've experienced cannot separate me nor can it separate us from the love of God in Christ because he is our light and our salvation. He is the stronghold, the refuge, the safe place of our soul and our salvation. And then in verse 4, starting in verse 4, David changes gears. That having confessed the Lord as his light and salvation, the stronghold of his life, he expresses his desire to pursue an even greater intimacy with the Lord. He writes, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. So intimacy with God begins with talking to yourself. What it creates then, intimacy with God, creates the desire to seek his presence. David knew the best way to gain clarity was to spend time with God. So he often, he said, would go to the temple, which at that time was not the temple that Solomon built. It was just this tent made of skins. It was not very attractive to look at. But he would go into that temple, he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is an ironic thing. Because 
all David could do was go into the temple. He, he couldn't sacrifice. That was not his role as king. He couldn't go into the, the place of the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies, because only the priest could do that, and only once a year carrying the blood of bulls and goats with him. So why would he go into the temple? Because it represented something. God's presence. And there in, in that semi-darkened place with a, the menorah and the candles burning, very dimly lit, he would stand there. Or he would stand outside it and he would gaze at the beauty of the Lord. And that's something too, I think, as men, we tend not to be comfortable with. Gazing at the beauty of the Lord. But that's why I had us read from a Second Corinthians. I got all choked up when, uh, when it was read because I love the verse. It's verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. David did not have that privilege he could only go to the temple. He could only see this physical structure. And somehow through that communion, he would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We have the privilege of gazing into the full face of God revealed to us in Christ. Because when Moses asked God to show him his glory, Moses said, you cannot. No man can see my face and live. In the New Testament, Paul says, we now with unveiled faces can behold the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and not die but live and find in that moment, find in that experience strength and health and courage and vitality, forgiveness, grace, mercy, all that is needed for life and godliness we find by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. That word gaze is a lover's term. Husbands and wives who've been married for any length of time no longer gaze at each other the way that they did when they were dating or first married. You remember those days, don't you? You just sort of get the old poets, you get lost in the eyes, right? They're like two limpid pools which are into which I dive, right? And you're just, you could just spend hours, there's no conversation needed. Because you're, you're, there's all sorts of things happening just by gazing. And you're admiring one another. And you're praising one another's beauty and handsomeness. It's the kind of emotional response that God wants us to have when we gaze at his beauty. Reading his word, contemplating his creation, just gazing. Staring at the glory of God until you see it. He can see right through us. He can see to our very being. There's no use, no good trying to hide from him. He knows our heart. He knows our thoughts. And still he beckons us, come. Still he bids us with open arms to come into his presence. Gaze upon my beauty. Gaze upon my dazzling radiance. And fear not, as did Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple and he heard the words, holy, 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 and the temple shook. And Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone because I have seen the Lord and I am a man of unclean lips and I live in a land of people with unclean lips. But now we, because we have been doused and cleansed and sanctified by the blood of Christ, we can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. More than that, 
we have the privilege of reflecting that beauty outward. Right? Beauty not as a physical appearance, but a beauty that comes through grace and mercy, and the preaching of his word, the sharing of that testimony, that kind of intimacy is what we get to experience. Is that kind of beauty is what we get to share. It's that kind of beauty that allows David, again, to talk to himself that when he is afraid, knowing that he says, God will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It's what we do when we come into gathered worship every Sunday. We can do it as well in our homes or in our cars or, or some quiet place at work. But we offer those sacrifices as a body and it becomes a rich and pleasing aroma to God because he hears the songs and the pleas and the prayers of the hearts of his people and God is pleased with that. And we are covered with his love, his protection. We are covered with the power of his beauty. And we then get the privilege of reflecting that beauty outward. All of this David is telling himself and thank God he does, because by telling it to himself, by recording it, we get the privilege of understanding and diving further into it. So intimacy with God creates this desire to seek his face. It also generates an unshakable trust in him. Because starting in verse 7, David moves from remembering God's faithfulness in the past to calling on him to continue his faithfulness in the present. So once again, the man whom God described as someone after his own heart will seek God until God answers his prayer. So he says in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. That's bold. That's not a request. That is a demand. Answer me when I call you. I am in need. I am fearful. I am anxious. I am worried. And if you don't answer me, if you don't respond, I am naked and I am defenseless against the onslaught of the fears that are rising within me and the enemies that are rising without but at least in that moment of fear, David is going to the proper source. He goes to the Lord. He doesn't go to YouTube. Doesn't go to TikTok. He pleads, whether he's standing, kneeling, or prostrate on his face before God, he prays. And you can only pray that kind of prayer. If you know the fear of God, but not the fear of man. You can only pray this kind of prayer if you know he is your light and salvation and the stronghold of your life. He expresses his desire to know God more intimately because he then immediately, after demanding that God be gracious to him, and answer his prayer, he says, you have said, this is why I'm making this demand. Because you've said, seek my face. 
Your face, Lord, I will seek. The amazing thing is, we think we're seeking God. But Jesus tells us in John 4 that God is seeking us. He is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants us to seek him. He is not playing some cosmic game of hide and seek, whereby he invites us to seek him and then he keeps himself secret. And should he be silent when we plead for his answer? That is only for the purpose of drawing us ever closer to him. You've, I'm sure you've seen these nature shows. I remember when we lived in North Dakota, we would, you know, the, the farmers, would, the ranchers would care for their cows and their heifers who would give birth to calves. And, the, you know, the, the, the little calves would, would drink milk from the mother's udders. But, the, you know, the mother, would, would, the mother cow would just sort of walk away from the calf. And the calf was like, what gives? Like, I was having a meal. Where are you going? And the calf would follow the mom, and she'd suck a little bit more, and then the mom would move, and the cow's like, okay, I don't get this. Right? What's the mother doing? She's strengthening the legs of her baby calf. She said, you gotta, you got to walk. You can't stand still. you got to follow me. I'm going to feed you, but you've got to come. You've got to follow me. When God is silent, when you've pleaded for his voice, He's inviting you to draw closer to me. He did not speak to Elijah with the, out of the whirlwind. He did not speak to Elijah out of the earthquake. It's when things were quiet. And a whisper on the wind got Elijah out of that cave. God sometimes draws us closer by purposely distancing himself from us so that he would know, so that we would know what is in our heart. Are we serious about pursuing him or are we just playing at this church thing? Are we only serving God because of the things he gives us? Is it simply a transactional relationship? I pray so many prayers, I go to so many meetings and God, you just ring up and the cash register opens and out comes the blessing? Or are you following me because the gift I have given you is so priceless and so precious that you cannot help but worship me? We worship God not out of a desire for a greater transaction. We worship him out of a desire to have a greater intimacy with him. An intimacy that nothing and no one on this earth or under the earth or in heaven, can ever sever, break, or ruin. And David says, he pleads with God not to abandon him or to forsake him in, in verse 9 again. He says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. He had a strong faith, David did, in the trustworthiness of God. But remember, David likely wrote this psalm as an older man, perhaps at the end of his life. And when men are old, especially old men at the end of their lives, men who have lived boldly, men who have sinned greatly and have been forgiven much, they find life to be a mixture of hope 
and regret. And when they start to review their past, it's very easy for the regret to outweigh the hope. We all have regrets. And if we let them, they can devour our faith the way that rust devours iron. The best way to stop regret from corroding our faith is by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Every time regret gnawed at David's conscience, he would clap back at it. No! The Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I will not allow regret to deter me or to keep me from worshiping and praising and seeking greater intimacy with God. That's what the enemy attempts to do. It's what helped Peter overcome his regret at denying Christ three times. It's what allowed Paul to say with confidence, though I am the chief of sinners, I received the mercy of God so that in me the very grace of God might be made manifest and revealed to all. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. To paraphrase Ron Swanson, just as there has never been a sadness that can't be cured by breakfast, there has never been a regret too great or a sin too big that can't be forgiven by the grace, mercy, and loving kindness of God. David trusted God to be his only hope, his only help, Friends may fail, foes all unite, and even his own family, hyperbolically speaking, may turn him out, but the Lord will take him in, will scoop him up in his arms like the father of the prodigal son and say, welcome home, welcome home, my beloved. Now enjoy the fellowship that is yours by right, by blood by sealing of the Spirit. And then lastly, an intimacy with God inspires a courageous confidence in God. David concludes in verses 11 to 14, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. When the Bible talks about a level path, it's talking about a path that is easy to navigate. It's a path that is easy on the feet, it's easy on the body. It's clear, it's marked, it's one that's able to be well-traveled without threat from enemy or any other kind of harm. Whenever Jill and I go hiking, we are always thankful when we reach a level path after a long uphill climb. Even if the path is cluttered with roots and rocks, at least it's level. Because when you're climbing uphill, when life is uphill for you, you, you get discouraged when you try to look to the top. All you can see is what's in front of you. But when you're on a level path, oh, that's one of the things we appreciate about living in the prairies. You can see where you were. You can see where you're going. There's nothing there except land and road. David says, you put my feet on a level path. 
And then he ends the psalm, and this is also asking for God to instruct him and teach him, so he doesn't wander from that path. And then he ends with a, another pep talk, still talking to himself. Right? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That means as bad as this is right now, I'm not going to die just yet. I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know I'm going to see it when I depart this life, but I know also I'm going to see it now. And then he says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, which is just simply a way of restating the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. David will not do nothing while he waits. It's not like he'll just sort of put his arms, you know, like, just sort of, you know, like watching golf on Sunday afternoon in the Lazy Boy. Eventually the time will pass. No, he won't do nothing. He will worship. He will live in the light. He will keep God's commandments. He will seek clarity by seeking a greater intimacy with God. Clarity gained through intimacy. So let me end with this. Uh, 1999, we were living in Canada. I don't think that they operate here in the States. There's a, an insurance company, an investment and insurance company in Canada known Clarica. Uh, the Clarica Investment and Insurance Company in the 1990s ran a series of television commercials uh, which remained some of the most memorable, memorable ones ever produced in Canada. One of the more memorable commercials uh, is of a, uh, so it's a rainy day, there is a woman sitting on a bench at a bus stop. She's holding an umbrella. Across the street, busy street in downtown Toronto, there is, a nut, there is a man in a raincoat at the other bus stop on the other side, and he is waving his arms frantically at the woman with the umbrella, trying to get her attention. And he's just sort of, he's putting his arms like this, and he's just keeping, he's just thrusting his hands in the air. And the woman on the bench is like, I, I, I've, what is he doing? And a woman standing next to the man, waving his arms, notices what he notices, but rather than waving her arms as well, she reaches down into her briefcase, pulls out a portfolio, and she draws an arrow, pointing upward. The woman on the bench suddenly looks up and then dashes from the bench, and a piano falls on the bench. With that, the narrator is heard to say, there's a lot to be said for clarity. <laughs> there is. Spiritual clarity, intimacy with God, is the fruit of a robust, bold, and spontaneous joy in worshiping Him. It leads to a deeper intimacy with Him. And intimacy with God begins by talking to yourself about God that generates an unshakable trust in him, that creates a desire to seek his presence, and finally inspires a courageous confidence in his will. You think about that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when all seems murky, there is clarity that can be gained by retreating into your presence by seeking your face, by trusting you as the one who is our light, our salvation, our place of refuge and wisdom. 
Father, we, we give you thanks for these things, and we pray that our worship would be made all the sweeter, all the more robust, all the more bold and spontaneous because of it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.